Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God and what draws us near the Kingdom of God that we're supposed to be seeking in righteousness and what is unrighteousness and why is all this important. There's been a number of discussions on Facebook and in the network and in the media uh, about a lot of things this last week, and all of them can be related to the Kingdom of God and that Kingdom model. The kingdom of God is the right to be ruled by God. If you're being ruled by God, you're not being ruled by other men. You're not being ruled by the church. You're not have other people making laws besides the laws of God. The laws of God are, are not 700. They're two. Basically two commandments. Thou shalt love thy God with thy whole heart, mind, and soul, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, Loving God means loving the nature of God, the name of God, the character of God, and God is a giver of life. So you have to be a person who loves giving life, who loves sharing his life with others in a giving way that strengthens and improves the life of other people. Strengthens their character, strengthens their name. In the name of God, in the ways of God, if you follow the way, that's what Christianity was called, the way. And that way leads to life. All other ways lead to death. Now, there's a lot of people go to church, but they're not really following Christ. There's a lot of people say they're religious, but they're not even practicing religion. They're practicing what is defined as religion today. And we've covered that so many times. Everybody should know by now, but we always have new listeners Religion is not what you think about God. Religion is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And your duty to God and your fellow man is to love God, the nature of God, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It is not loving your neighbor to take away his life, to take away his stuff, to take away his family. Just this week in the news, we heard about someone who went into a church in Texas and killed 25, 26, maybe 27 people now. I'm not sure how many people finally died uh, and wounded a lot more, wiped out whole families in a bloodbath with an assault rifle, theoretically an assault rifle. Actually, technically, the term assault rifle in a military sense is a gun that can be switched between automatic and semi-automatic. The gun he had probably did not have that ability. It was probably only a semi-automatic weapon. And he was eventually stopped by a man with an assault rifle (laughs) who ran out in his bare feet, an older fellow, raised children, grandchildren, and he runs out and uh, he confronts the man and the man jumps into his car and flees. His car was full of more weapons. He was maybe just going back to reload. He had evidently run out of he was down to a pistol at that point, but he was shot in the, the exchange of fire, and, and uh, then another man uh, gave chase with the original man who came out in his bare feet, 
uh, Stephen Williford, I think is his name. And uh, they stop the the perpetrator. If many other churches, actually there's a law in Texas where you can actually be forbidden for bringing a gun, even with a concealed weapons permit, into a church. Uh, but uh, you actually have to be told that the by someone in charge in the church that you don't have to bring that gun in here. And... Uh, and then it applies. It doesn't apply just generally speaking. I'm sure a lot more churches, uh, you know, the local church out here in this community, very small, little tiny community church, non-denominational, where people, it's the only building we have in the community and people would meet there. Uh, I know personally that several of the people always had a pistol in their pocket when <laughs> they went to church. <laughs> uh, but uh, so anyway, I, I, we had the question last week. uh uh, coming about, do we have a right to self-defense? And we have articles up on preparing you and at His Holy Church uh, and newswithviews.com. I wrote a four-part series uh, a number of years ago on the right of self-defense. There's actually a turn and twist in, in that. But from a spiritual point of view, yes, you do have a right of self-defense. But what does that mean? And uh, that's not really the topic of the program, but uh, I thought we would mention that and we'll make a few other announcements and then we'll get in uh, to what really is probably going to be more about social justice and social cost and the and that kingdom model. Why? Why it seems so complicated to some when it's really so simple. Love thy neighbor as thyself and love God with thy whole heart, mind and soul. And I love the Creator. You can use that word instead of God if you don't like the word God, or, or if you want to use Yahweh, you can use that. But what what does that mean? Existing one, the one who brings existence into existence, and and so the giver of life. You have to love that idea of giving life. This is why people get married. This is why people have children. This is why they should get married and have children, is that they're giving life. Now, why they come together in congregations to give life, not, you know, because I like the music, not because it makes me really feel good, not because it, you know, resolves some of my guilt issues for what I did the rest of the week. <laughs> but you come together uh, because you want to give life. You want to you want to strengthen the poor and you want everybody to have life more abundant and you're willing to lay down your life in that process. So I added to the page that we have at Preparing You on Self-Defense. And I added a little picture and put a caption underneath it. And I think it says something like, The kingdom of God is in the moment and our guide is the Holy Spirit. We draw near the Holy Spirit through sacrifice of self. So when we say things like uh, the right to self-defense, we are not talking about the egotistical, selfish self we're talking about the the self that serves that lays down its life for others and serves in righteousness not covetousness not in greed or uh, avarice or wantonness it's that selfless self that uh, we have the right to defend and uh, we have the right to defend that in others because you 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 are the one who are making the decisions as to whether you are going to move towards the kingdom or not. But those decisions must concern other people because you have to love others as much as yourself. That's part of the equation. If you don't have that, 
you're creating an imbalance and you will not move towards the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to be our guide towards the kingdom of God. Not me. I'm just bearing witness to what I found. Hopefully you will hear the Holy Spirit in yourself and that will say, oh yeah, I that's right, that's true. I, I realize that. And you will move in that direction of the kingdom. Because it's all about direction. Repenting is all about direction. Repenting is about turning from where you've been going and go another way. It's not a static term. It talks about turning and going. You can't just say, I repented, now I'll go back to doing everything like I used to do before. You actually have to turn your repentance into action in the opposite direction. If the prodigal son just kept thinking about going back to his father's house and never actually started to go, his father never would have run out and met him halfway. He'd have remained in the pig pen uh, where he should be, under the power of the pig masters. So anyway, uh, we, we need to be filled with that Holy Spirit. And the more you are filled with that Holy Spirit, the less you will have to draw your sword. The more you you seek the righteousness of God, the less you will be subject or, or need to pull that sword, to draw that sword. Um, because of the fact that we're really in a spiritual battle. We're not in a physical battle. I mean, literally, the Spirit of God could feed everybody. It could be the manna from heaven from everybody. It could protect everybody. But in the meantime, you may have to, you know, dig into your pocket to help to feed the needy. And it might be food. It might be, you might feed them with rebuke. You might say, you know, you need to get a job. <laughs> you need you need to get focused. You You need to stop taking drugs. You need to stop drinking alcohol. You need to stop beating your wife. And all those kinds of things that you, that's another way to feed the poor is to rebuke because as many as I love I also rebuke but you have to physically and, and this is this is where grace comes you have to physically apply your repentance in daily deeds and actions uh this is this is a very very important uh approach to seeking that kingdom of god because seeking, again, is an action word. It means that you're actually doing something. You're not saved by a tally ship of doing, a tally sheet of doing. You're, you're saved because you've repented and turned around. But if you're not doing, then your repentance may be false. Your faith may not be true faith. You don't really believe in God. Because as soon as you really believe in God, you're going to start turning that faith into action because God is a doer and if you love the doer you will be a doer too and so if you're not a doer if you're slothful your love may be waning uh, your claim of love may be false you need to be a doer of the word you need to be diligent you need to strive all these are these are Christ's own words, and if you're going to listen to the doctrines of Christ, you need to have those words foremost in your mind. Is His words? His words aren't just believe. 
not they're not just think something they're actually about being a doer of the word and when paul says things about being a believer he's speaking in the greek and faith in the greek is an action word it's like allegiance if you claim to have allegiance to a government uh then you will show and manifest that allegiance you can't just say it you have to do it if you're doing uh things that uh you're, you that are not showing that allegiance or actually showing an attitude to the contrary of that allegiance you're considered a traitor and that's a death penalty in most countries well in the kingdom of god it's a death penalty penalty as well but you're imposing it upon yourself you're cutting yourself off from the holy spirit when god shows you something you should do and you refuse to do it because you're lazy because you're preoccupied because you're selfish you can't be those things and enter into the kingdom and this is why he talks about it's hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom because they can be easily possessed by their wealth. Uh, wealth is a great temptation. So, uh, uh, there's another topic that we're going to talk about, like I said, social justice. And I have a section here that I was going to talk about, but uh, uh, where somebody... He was talking about the liberal dialectic uh, or uh, dialect. Uh, I think Lisa Smiley said something about it. And, uh, you know, she was showing that, you know, when a liberal says tolerance, they don't really mean tolerance like we mean tolerance. When they say compassion, they don't really mean compassion like we mean compassion. When they they say they're pro-choice, uh, they're really about taking choice away. They're certainly taking choice away from the child. Uh, they're almost always an advocate of taking the choice away from the man who is at least half of the part of their uh, conception of a child in their womb. And, uh, you know, they, they claim, you know, that men should stay out of, you know, that it's none of anybody else's business what goes on in their womb. Well, the reality is, is that once they allow somebody else to enter into that womb, <laughs> then, then there's another opinion involved. You know, they can't just exclude that. So, pro-choice people really aren't pro-choice. I'm pro-choice. I want the child to have a choice, <laughs> and the father to have a choice, and uh, the mother to have a choice. And the mother had a choice before she allowed the father to create another third-party choice inside of her. And now people want to say, you know, talk about rape. And that's not that's not why there's a plague of abortion in the world today. And abortion is not a solution. It's actually a symptom of a problem. And this is one of the things that we have to understand. Whether there is a vast conspiracy of social engineering or not, we are being socially engineered by our environment. And uh, we're going to talk about rules. You know, what do you mean by rules? There's something that someone brought up. Somebody who's, I think he's down in Uruguay now. And he's talking about forming a community and how to do that and everything. And so we shared some information with him. And it seems real complex. And we'll get into why it's really very simple. In talking about a child being conceived, that's a very simple process. 
from a certain point of view. A man and a woman are very capable of conceiving a child in, in the woman's womb, and that child will grow up and eventually be born. And the woman really doesn't have to do a lot of planning and thinking and everything. She should, you know, effectually monitor her diet and and exercise and all these things. But the nature is taking over. They came together and nature took over. And that child is being produced. The production of that child from, you know, two cells coming together... Dividing the double helix, dividing cells, which, you know, the double helix is complex enough, but it's not all of genetics. Epigenetics is a huge part of that. That complex chemistry of doing that is extremely involved. And it goes on and on and creates bones and livers and hearts and brains and tissue and Suddenly a child is born. Extremely con- complex chain of events. But the original thing that set it in motion was rather simple. Uh, kind of a no-brainer. Uh, it, very easily done. And there you end up with a child. Well, it's a little like that with a community. You know, to have people come together in a single place, that's pretty simple. Uh, it's not a complex thing. We're all going to come together. We're going to be this community. But now, the process of maintaining your personal identity, your personal freedom, yet maintaining the community, which is often necessary for the survival of the individual, is to have a community that's there for him and he's there for it. So, how that all fits together is an extremely complex process. It's very simple, and it will kind of fall into place naturally, which is what one of the individuals says it should be kind of natural, or what he's looking at the complexity of rules as unnatural. But the rules are already in existence. You know, the rules of nature are already in existence. If you go this way, this is going to happen. If you go that way, that is going to happen. And so, but if you want to know how that all works, you know, it's kind of, and I gave the analogy of going out into the wilderness. And if you go out into the wilderness, um, nature is going to impose rules upon you. Walk on quicksand, you're going to sink. Go over to the poisonous plants, you're going to get you know, poison on you. You eat the poisonous plants, you're going to die. Uh, you you go where the cougars are and the, the uh, panthers are, then you're going to deal with cougars and panthers. If you go in with the uh, piranhas, you're going to have to deal with piranhas. If you go in where the gators are, you're going to have to deal with the gators. That Those rules already exist because the gators already exist. Uh or crocodiles, whatever they have down there in South America. Uh, all these things already exist. You can call them rules or, or, or not, but if you disregard them, you will suffer the consequences of them. And that's that's the rules we're talking about. We're not talking about imposing rules or becoming lawmakers or saying you can only do this, and if you don't do this, we'll slap your knuckles. We're talking about the rules of nature. Well, man... 
is an item of nature. You are a part of nature. You have a brain. Uh, well, most of you. <laughs> uh, you have a brain. You, you can use it or you can not use it. In other words, you can, you can depend upon your emotions and not use your brain, your intellectual intellectual brain. You can just depend upon your emotions. You cannot think about things and just go by your feelings. Uh, that's choices that you are actually making by the nature of the spirit that dwelleth in you. And if you decide not to use your intellect, but just to use your emotions, that's going to have consequences in how you relate to the environment that you're in. That's going to have consequences on how the environment in which you're in, which has a nature of its own, is going to treat you. And uh, now there's a third way to do, not brain, not emotions, not flesh. You know, emotions are chemical secretions of hormones and uh, stimulants inside your body. And, uh, I mean, emotions without that have no effect. But with that, you can make you tremble, make you afraid, can give you courage. All this is a chemical reaction inside the body. You can actually stimulate those chemical reactions with your mind and what you're thinking. In other words, you can think about frightening things and you, you adrenaline will start to flow into your system. So, but those are over here on this side of the equation. There's another element which is spiritual. And that spiritual element, that's a little harder to deal with because it's not, it's in this realm, but not entirely in this realm. It's your connection to other realms, other dimensions, so to speak. We, You know, the Bible talks about those dimensions as heaven and hell. Uh, if you went to a physicist, he might talk about those dimensions in other terms, you know. Uh, they haven't really defined, they they believe there's all kinds of other dimensions around us that uh, and, and that they're actually trying to open doorways into, but they don't want to define them as heaven and hell because <laughs> a lot of them are atheists. They don't believe in that. But that's really what this is all about, these other dimensions. And one dimension, in one dimension, they operate by uh, love and life, and giving of life. In the other dimensions, there's more of, you know, they, they're missing some of that compassion, and they're more about taking life, and consuming, and controlling, and manipulating. And uh, there's probably a great, if there's more than two of those dimensions, like Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. Is he talking about many different dimensions? I don't know. Many different levels. I mean, lots of philosophers have written about those levels. But the point is, we're just talking about direction. Are you moving towards the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life, the kingdom of creation, the kingdom of love? Or are you moving towards other realms that are not giving life, but taking life? And so, in those choices, in those spiritual choices... We go under the rules that are already existent in society, in the world. And we'll talk more about that when we come back.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, so we're talking about uh, uh, what the, these three elements inside of us and how it controls us. And then how when we live inside society and in the world in which society finds itself, how that controls us because there are rules already in existence. It's part of creation. You can't change that. You can believe there is no gravity, but you still, there's gravity. There is a spoon. <laughs> For all intensive relationships, uh, there, the, the physical reality is around us, and we have to operate within that physical reality. There is also, I believe, a spiritual reality around us, and we are going to operate within that spiritual reality as well. Now, what we call the emotional reality, that is somewhat stimulated by chemicals that the body produces. And you can actually uh, produce those chemicals outside of the body and then reintroduce them into the body. And that can have an effect on you. You know, artificial hormones. Uh, I mean, like if you if you drink alcohol, it can get you drunk. If you smoke marijuana, it will have an effect on you as well. If you, uh, trying to think of some of the other things you can do. I mean, you overeat. That's going to have an effect on your body. It can have an effect on your disposition. You know, I've, I've run in uh, quite a bit in the last week with people who are taking prescription drugs. And, uh, they're telling me that they're taking the prescription drugs because they have stomach pain, insomnia, uh, uh, burning mouth, and uh, and there was another element, but at least those three elements that they were having trouble with. So they were taking this prescription medicine, and they had to take it every four or five hours. They're supposed to take it every five hours, but sometimes they they're having such trouble that they take it after four hours. And you know, I just pulled up my phone, looked up that drug. Pulled up, you know, what, just Googled it and pulled up this, the side effects of that drug. <laughs> and I showed them the side effects of the drug. It's all the symptoms that they have that they're taking the drug to relieve are actually the side effects of the drug. <laughs> and uh, they says, well, I, I don't. I don't have these problems when I first take the drug. I only have it when the drug is wearing off after about four or five hours. And so I quickly Googled withdrawal symptoms of that drug. Same thing. <laughs> All the, so that literally when they, the, the doctor has gotten them addicted to the drug. As a matter of fact, one of the drugs that came up in, in one case, uh, says you're 40% more likely to get hooked on heroin after taking this drug. <laughs> and so anyway, I'm showing them that what your what the ailments you think you have are simply the side effects of withdrawal from the drug. So you start feeling the withdrawal symptoms and you immediately say, oh, I need the drug again because I have this. My problem is coming back. No, it's not your problem coming back. It's your drug addiction. 
showing the withdrawal because you haven't had a fix in five hours. So you think, oh, I need to go get this to protect myself against my malady. Your malady is you're a drug addict. That's your malady. I'm putting it in very blunt terms. But, you know, and people don't like it. Evidently, some people have voiced that they don't like it when I said you can't fix stupid. I'm showing them what the drug company says are the side effects and the side effects of withdrawal. I'm just showing them what is already published and readily available, but they've never looked that up. They're shocked. I asked them now, why did you originally start taking this drug? Well, they couldn't even remember what the original complaint was. They had a few sleepless nights. <laughs> you know, they didn't sleep well a couple of nights. Could have been, you know, uh, as Scrooge would say, a piece of moldy cheese. <laughs> Could have been all kinds of things, you know, uh, that interrupted their sleep patterns. And they go to the doctor and he says, take this drug. And they go home and take the drug and they become a drug addict. Legally. Government's paying for it. So, you know, what the heck? You know, it's free. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. And this is, this is rampant in this country. There are semi-loads of these drugs. Uh, going out. We should do a whole program just on them and just go down and read the, for all the people. But the fact is, if you were in a congregation of record and uh, you went to your minister, uh, if he couldn't supply you with the answer, we can probably find it for you. And again, we're not making this up. We're not checking a guru in Montana. We're going to the actual drug companies that produce these drugs and they will tell you. They have to, by law, tell you. And, you know, I equate this with the fact that evil tells you exactly what they're doing. They will tell you this. You'll see it all the time uh, if, you, if you're observant. They will tell you what they're doing. And you won't believe them or you won't see it. You won't have eyes to see because you're a part of the problem. And this is this is what's happening in the world. And this is why we're going to show you some of these things about social costs and social justice, so that you can you can step back. This is why we tell you most of this stuff. You know, the definition of definition of religion and how it's changed over the last two hundred years. Well, you don't have to change the Bible. You just change the definition of the words that you find in the Bible. And you can change the minds of the people. If you can change the minds of the people, you can change the emotions of the people. And if you can change the minds and the emotions of the people, you will change the direction of the people. And you will kill them spiritually. I mean, that's one of the big problems is people think that emotion and spirit are the same thing. No, they are not. Spirit trumps emotion. It's kind of like rock, paper, scissors. But even more so, spirit trumps the physical. Spirit trumps... When your spirit is united with the creator of life, the tree of life, then that, his spirit, moving in your spirit, will heal your physical body. It will control your emotions. So instead of you having emotions... Uh, which is actually most people when they say, well, I have emotions. No, your emotions have you. 
Your emotions control you. You know, I mean, the the fellow who went out and shot all those people, his emotions had taken over. His mind was taken over by a spiritual realm that leads to destruction. This is why all these guys, and most all these guys are on some of these drugs that have come in from outside of them and been prescribed by doctors because a lot of them have suicidal and and malevolent effects. It's part of their side effects. You read the side effects. And what they'll do is they go out, they kill people, and then when they're cornered, they kill themselves. They, they, they turn their gun on themselves and they kill themselves. That's a spiritual pattern of destruction. Uh, Saul was infected with that, that spirit. That's why he fell on his own sword. Because he had to destroy. He was a part of that destructive spirit. He was not following the spirit of God. But David was, a, was an individual after God's own heart. So he, he had another spirit guiding him from time to time. And then from time to time he, he slipped and he fell and he did wrong. But much of the time he was repenting because he was willing to see, hey, I've screwed up, I've done wrong. This is very important. That you're willing to see that you've gone the wrong road, that you've gone the wrong way. Because this, it, until you're willing to see that, you can't repent. You have to realize this is the wrong way. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to have to move along here quick because I got a lot of material to cover. Uh, social justice is defined, this is the term that's come up. And we'll talk about the history of it. But just briefly, there's at least two different definitions of social justice wandering around. And one is, it's a concept of fair and just relations between the individual and society. Well, of course, you have several relative terms in this definition, which has to do with fair and just. What is fair? What is just? And it has to do with the relationships of the individual and society. So it's the individual and all other individuals in what you would call a society. And a society is not necessarily a community. There's often communities within a society. But a society is, we'll go into that definition some other time, but you can look it up. We have whole articles on society. But this, there's another definition of social justice, uh, which is a term of concerned with the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Well, now one of the key words here is distribution. Who's doing the distributing? Is it nature that's doing the distributing? You know, because a person is is uh, stronger, more adept, uh, smarter, uh, he ends up with more wealth and opportunity and privilege. Well, nature is a part of that distribution. But there are other elements besides skill and smart and and clever and all these things. There's also compassion. So, when a wealthy man becomes wealthy, if he also has compassion, he will distribute that wealth that he has accumulated. But that, that, all that is according to nature. The modern social justice warrior is often wanting to become that distributor of other people's wealth. He is not tolerant of other people's wealth. He talks about tolerance 
but he is not tolerant of other people's ability to accumulate wealth. And we're talking about accumulating wealth in an honest fashion. He's just smarter, he's clever, he is harder working, and he accumulates wealth. We're not talking about exploitation of others. We're just talking about exploitation exploitation of his own personal talents, his means of production. We'll get into the other aspects later. And so compassion is something he must have to redistribute his wealth. If you're intolerant of his wealth, you will think it is compassionate to take away from him and give to others. Well, no. No, that isn't what real compassion is. Real compassion is you go out and get a job, you work hard, and you take care of others with what you produce. That's real compassion. you giving up your time, your means of production. It's not compassion to give up other people's means of production so that you can look generous. That's an important thing. And we're going we're gonna to come back to that over and over again. And, uh, oh, I just stumbled on that quote that I was looking for. I thought I had put it down. It evidently got slid down farther. <laughs> A sword on the side of the righteous keeps the swords of the unrighteous in their sheath. And I, I just kind of made that up. Couldn't remember it. Uh, I should memorize my own quotes. But the reality is that's back to that right of self-defense. But what's righteous? And uh, so who is righteous? Who is unrighteous? Because there are a lot of people who think they have a right to take away from the rich and give to the poor. And they think that's righteousness. But that's actually covetousness. And if the Ten Commandments has anything to do with the creator of heaven and earth and the giver of life, then we have to realize that covetousness, like stealing, it isn't stealing, but it's like stealing, is a violation of the Ten Commandments and therefore a violation of the two. You you love your neighbor unless he is rich and then you want to take away from him. <laughs> so that doesn't count. The reality is that if you want to take away from the poor, if you want to take away from the rich, if you want to exploit the poor, you're a rich man, you want to hire people for as little as you can get away with paying them, you don't mind cheating them out of their time and their energy. If if you are one of those, that's not necessarily the case just because somebody is rich. Um, if, if you're that exploiter of either the rich or the poor, because of covetousness, then that is going to alter your spiritual DNA and draw you towards the realm of unrighteousness. That 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 hell where it's dog eat dog. It's going to draw you that way. And it's going to affect your ability to see the truth. And so, anyway, that's very important. Now, we're going to expound upon that. If you don't understand it, stay tuned and we'll expound upon that so that you get a clear picture of that. Now, you have to re- realize that freedom, the right to choose, what we call liberty, is power. It's the power to choose. the exousia, as they say in the Greek. You know, let every man be subject to the exousia, the power to choose. The right to choose. Because there is no right to choose 
except by God. And anyone who opposes that right to choose opposes God. Well, a child doesn't have that same power to choose. That's why he has parents. He's born to the parents. Parents have given him life. It is the parent's responsibility to teach that child how to make choices. How to make good choices. Well, I know that the way to make good choices is to enlist the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not to control your children or manipulate your children. It's to guide them to the Holy Spirit so that they depend upon that Holy Spirit, that Spirit of God, that Spirit of the Creator, that Spirit of the Giver of Life, as opposed to the Spirit of the Taker of Life, which is at the other end of the spectrum, but that Giver of Life, to come into you and help show you, open your eyes and show you the right way to go. And that that power to choose, that freedom, is a power. And it brings the power of God if you choose according to the Spirit of God, which giveth life. So that's just the rules. That's how it works, is that you're either a taker or a giver. You can be a give and taker to some degree, but when I say taker, I'm talking about you know, take and take and take from your neighbor because you covet your neighbor's stuff and you want their stuff and you want everything they have. I mean, it's one thing to want a wife like your neighbor. It's another thing to want your neighbor's life. Some people call that, I want a car like my neighbor. They say that's coveting. No, that's not coveting. It's when you want your neighbor's car. That's coveting. You want your neighbor's money so you can buy a car like your neighbor. That's still coveting. You want your neighbor to pay for what you don't want to go out and earn. That's coveting. So anyway, and when you are covetous, it will draw you towards this other realm and it will affect your vision, your ability to see What is right and wrong? Because you will start to look at the world and the problems that are in the world and the dangers that are in the world through the eyes of those who live in darkness. You know, live in that realm, not willing to see the light of God, which is a giver of life. God gives life, you know, creates a realm in which more life may become more abundant. He gives you the power of choice so that you may choose to be like him and give up his power. You know, God gave up his power to choose for you. People say, why is there evil in the world? Is this an all-seeing, all-loving God? Because he gave you the power to choose. And you can do something that will produce more good or less good. You can do something that will take away life or you can do something that will give life. And there's a lot of people out there deciding to take away life. Why? Because they're covetous. And they're claiming that they're doing it in the name of social social justice. Because they're intolerant of the rich. They want to take away from the rich. And, uh, you know, to make themselves seem like the benefactors of society. But they're only 
taking from taking life from others. They're not producing life. And that's why they have so much time to go out on the streets and protest and, and demonstrate. It's because they don't have jobs. <laughs> They're not working. They're not producing. They're not uh, giving life. And I tell you that when you start to go that way, and this is what happened with Israel. You know, they were heavily dependent upon government subsidies and government welfare in Egypt. And they were not taking care of one another. They were complaining under the burdens of uh, heavy taxation and control by government. But God was not hearing their cries until they started caring about one another. And this is what God says over and over again in the Bible. When they started doing that, it brought in a new element into the spiritual equation. And it allowed, it drew Moses to to learn and to come back and share with them what they needed to learn, which they had to love their neighbor as themselves. That's Moses said that before Jesus did. And they had to have the sacrifice of the red heifer, which was about four and eight outside the camp. And they couldn't have one purse. They had to be tolerant of everybody having the absolute control over their personal purse. That's absolutely essential. That's tolerance. See, the, the the liberal claims to be tolerant, but he's not tolerant of the rich man's purse. I tell you, you do not have to take away from the rich. You have to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the power will come to you by way of God. I mean, this is the law of nature. And you don't want to just create a community so that you can be comfortable. Don't you want to create a community so that the next generation will be comfortable uh, comfortable enough and have the power enough to choose to do the right thing. You don't want them to become complacently comfortable. And this is the kingdom of God is from generation to generation because you give life from generation to generation. The parents give life to the new parents and become grandparents. And the grandparents will continue to give life to their grandchildren who will eventually become the next generation. This is the process of giving life, laying down your life so that you have life more abundant, which is why in the social engineers of society, they're taking away, constantly taking away the parents from the children Move the children off to public schools. Move the parents off so they both have to work outside the home. Get the grandparents in a convalescent home. They're dividing the family unit created by God so that they may become gods over you. And then they're drugging you and all these other things. The problems with abortion, the problem with overuse of drugs and medication, health problems. You know, there's actually, there's insurance companies now trying to go out and teach first-stage diabetics, diabetic 1 patients, how to alter their diet so they're not so insulin-dependent so they can get them off insulin because it's cheaper for them to learn to control their diet. But some people just don't want to control their diet. Why not? Can't they see that it would make a difference? They can't see. They have scales on their eyes. Where'd those scales come from? They came from what Polybius calls having come accustomed to living at the expense of others. 
it blinds you. You cannot see. You, you, you're poisoning yourself with your food, with your medicines, with your schools, with the education. You have no idea what education your children are receiving. They come back and they say, oh, they learned all this stuff. They got A's. What did they, they learn? Did they learn the truth? They learned stuff that they were taught. Where are all these liberals coming from? They're coming from those same schools. And we, we need to turn around and start thinking differently. If we're going to enter into a society that will be blessing the next generation rather than cursing it, which is what we have already done. So anyway, we're going to change course here in the next show. So stay tuned and we'll talk about social costs. Welcome back to uh, Keys of the Kingdom. We're we're going to talk about uh, human rights and this social justice and social costs. And uh, there was a, a book that we talked about that was written by um, Robert Burke. And uh, I have since put up a page with the recordings uh, that we uh, did on the, uh, on the, his book. Uh, we did a couple of shows on that. And it ended up that we were getting into uh, narcissism and everything else when we were talking about this. He has a book with a rather long title, Human Rights Versus Legal Rights, uh, Why the Church Must Separate from the State. So, the title of the book was of interest to us. And so, we we looked that up and uh, started trying to find out what was in the book. And, of course, he wanted us to buy the book. I didn't want to buy the book. I, w- I just wanted to find out a little bit about what where he was going. So kind of trying to squeak a little information out of him about wh- where is he coming from. Because, I mean, I could read all kinds of books. All kinds of people have books everywhere. But that isn't really the, you know, the answer. I just want to know, is this guy on the same page that we're on? Is he going the same way? And so... I questioned him, and, and finally he gave us kind of a synopsis of his his opinion. And uh, with that, you know, I did an analysis of what he was talking about. It wasn't very long. At first, some of his ideas sounded really good. And I thought, well, you know, this guy's kind of got something here, so let's find out more. So as I found out more, I found out that, uh, no... He doesn't have it. He, actually, he's he's way off the mark and talking about doing things that I consider really dangerous. Now, that's my opinion. He's still welcome to his opinion. Uh, we have the title of his book on the page. We have him on the page. He's linked to our uh, Guru Theories series. We we cover a lot of different people who come up with their solution. Just buy my book and you'll have the solution. 
All our books are available for free online. You can you join the network and somebody will tell you where they are. You can do a search for them by title and you can usually find them because they're on in usually several different formats and several different locations. Uh, but the free book isn't going to do you any good if you don't actually repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You have to turn what you're learning into action. But we give away a huge amount of information for free, including all of our books. So, but we're now reviewing his and we, we find it lacking. Uh, we find it in error. Uh, and uh, so we, I shared it with him, and he doesn't seem to like that, but that's that's his choice. All I'm doing is sharing my opinion. He, he's got his opinion. I don't think the book has any real intrinsic value. You know, and he talks about networking, and I agree with that. And Ben Shapiro talks about networking, and I agree with him on that, but I don't agree with him on everything else. <laughs> That's just the way it is. He talks about creating a registered charity or a church and uh, seems to fail to understand that uh, registered institutions are highly subject to regulation and control. He also seems to lack understanding as to the unique nature of the church as a body because lots of people start churches, but they're not the church established by Jesus Christ. They're not his church. They are, are actually institutions of the state or they're institutions of the IRS. If you, you're, if you apply to the IRS for a determination letter, it is the IRS who is determining that you're a church. Uh, we apply to Christ and we desire other people to see what we're doing as in conformity with Christ. If they don't, so be it. If they do, we would like them to bear witness that they think that we're doing what Christ said to do. And so we have, you know, a little where they can say they think that we're actually ministers of Christ. And they recognize that. And they give us a little token. And then that's a congregation of record because they're giving it to a minister who already has a congregation. And so now, now is their opportunity to pursue the kingdom of God. And they do that by, you know, they pick this minister. They need to want to get to know the other congregants. Just know them personally. Uh, help them personally. Help them seek the kingdom of God. And if they love their neighbor as themselves, that's their neighbor. So they'll want to do that. Now, they may do it with other neighbors who are not in that congregation. So be it. That's basic. And I tell you that that states and sets and plugs you into a spiritual dynamic where now your scales can start coming off your eyes. The more you sacrifice yourself for others in the pursuit of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, the more the scales will come off. The more your father will run out and meet you halfway. That's built into the system. That's a rule of nature, of the universe. That, you know, that's worship. When you do that, that's worship. And that worship will bring you closer to God. You are worshiping when you gather together to love your neighbor as yourself in a way that strengthens him and grows him as an individual. If you gather together and you, oh, I don't want to mention anything about that because it might upset him. I think he's doing wrong there, but I don't want to say he's doing wrong because it might create a conflict and then there'll be a scene. And no, 
No, you have to be willing to speak the truth, to rebuke. You do it in love, but you still you still rebuke. You know, and when I say you can't fix stupid, I'm wrong. Uh, what I'm saying, because I haven't finished the statement. You can't fix stupid if you won't repent. If you do repent, then the scales can come off and stupid can be fixed. Stupid is just not seeing things. You don't see, you don't know, you don't realize. And you are stupid. You lack perception. That can change if you repent. If you turn around and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will take the scales off and you will no longer... Because God can fix stupid. I can't fix it. You can't fix it. But God can fix it. And if you repent, God can meet you halfway and open your eyes so you can begin to see what social justice really is. So, anyway, he, he says things like, you are to love your neighbor as yourself, and we are to sell all we have and give to the poor. And he he uses that, it appears to create this, you know, community. And he says it would really work if you had a thousand people on an island where there was nobody else around them. And so you've isolated them, you know. And, uh, but no, no, that's not what you want. First thing I say is that we are to love our neighbors uh, as ourselves. And that love sometimes will include rebuke, like saying, no, you're wrong in your book. That's my rebuke. I'm not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it to be helpful. And uh, it's a command both of Christ and Moses to love your neighbor. And to, to As many as I love, I also rebuke is found both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there is no command that everyone sell all they have and give to the poor. He's he's talking about like a vow of poverty. That was only for his disciples. And those who wish to become his disciples. That's And his disciples were students. Studying to be the new ministers of his kingdom. And he was going to appoint them. This kingdom that was appointed unto him. They were not to rule over others. But they were to serve. And uh, rightly divide the bread from house to house, which is what they did in the first century church. The modern church, they go to church to feel good. And then if they need any bread, if they need any help, if they need any health care, they go to men who exercise authority one over the other, who call themselves benefactors, but only simply redistribute the wealth of their community by taking from some and re-handing it out again in social welfare programs which is the antithesis of the message of Christ. And people who seek to do that are either blind or in opposition to Christ. Now, I'm telling you that. I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You're either going to see it, turn around, and start coming together so that you can take care of one another in faith, hope, and charity, or you're going to say, I don't know what I'm talking about, and you're going to continue to apply and plan on applying to the men who exercise authority one over the other. And you will continue to live at the expense of your neighbor. And you will continue to become fit for nothing but dictators and monarchs. And you will become perfect savages. And uh, we'll explain why I say all that. And you'll see these things kind of coming together. So, yeah, we are to love our neighbors. But we're we're not supposed to take every. We are to lay down our life. 
We are to sacrifice in love for one another, but we, we everybody is not supposed to go under some sort of vow of poverty and become in some kind of one-purse society. And that we have articles. I just did a study on Tuesday nights. We do a study, and I just did one that you can go and see and hear the study call. And it was on David and the Messiah until now, the power to discharge. And we talk about David and the money changers and what Jesus was actually doing, what the Nicolaitans are, uh, what they do at Pentecost. And we explain all this, what they were doing in the temples and how all this works together in a society where people are liberated by the gospel of Christ. And uh, you can go there and it's got links to dozens of other articles. And you can find it by going to Preparing You and uh, clicking on the link that talks about uh, a study call. You can find it on the left, study call, remember that. And then go to the uh, table of contents and look for David and the Messiah until now, the power to discharge. And that will, and there you can find the audios and, and listen to that and learn. But right now we're talking about Mr. Robert Burke and his book and uh, this idea of social costs. And uh, he, he seemed to think that, you know, I, I'm writing him back and explaining something. And I put in the word social costs because that's a term he uses. It's It's been around for a while. And uh, I put a footnote in to show the definition of what a social cost is. But, you know, I'm on Facebook, so I didn't put in all the details. I was hoping he would kind of put the pieces together and read between the lines. But that's okay. So then I went back and explained it in greater detail so that he could kind of understand these things. And social costs, so that everybody understands where we're coming from, social costs is a wide-ranging term or phrase. Uh, and it can have an economic definition. It can have a general social definition. But it's the cost of being in a society. There's advantages to being in a society. And then there is a cost of being in society. And that cost can go up depending on how you organize your society. You can just say, well, I'm just going to let nature take its course. Uh, well, if you went out in the wilderness and just let nature take its course, you're going to end up in quicksand. You're going to end up, you know, devoured by insects because you don't know how to live in nature. There are consequences of just wandering around in nature. You say, well, no, you can't do this. You can't go there after dark. You can't swim in that water. You can't drink from that stagnant pool because it will kill you. <laughs> so those are consequences. So it's the same way. Uh, in the way you organize your society. If you organize, because your society becomes a part of nature, like the blind man who suddenly saw men as trees. Because gathering of men becomes a nature unto itself. It, it alters where, if you stand out in the wilderness all by yourself, that's one state of being. If you stand out in the wilderness with a hundred other people, that's another state of being. <laughs> and the presence of the other 99 alters the reality of where you're standing. You have to take them into consideration. There's going to be a relationship. Now, the nature of that relationship will alter the nature of 
that society. That 100 people out there gathered in one place in the wilderness, that's a society. Now, they, it may not be a very strong society because they don't have very many things in common, but that's a society. The more they have in common, maybe the stronger the society is. The Spartans were a society. We call it a nation. But they were a society. And they organized themselves in a certain fashion. And it made them very strong in some areas, but very weak in other areas. And understanding how that all works is about choice. And so I say that everything depends on choosing to love your neighbor as yourself. But what? how does that choosing to love your neighbor as yourself interpret itself into actual actions? Go back to that conception of a child. The child is conceived. Now, huge, complex relationships are developed between the child and the mother in her womb. You know, outside of the womb, hopefully the father is gathering nuts and berries and food to feed his wife and to take care of her. Hopefully he's doing those things. And so now there's a complex relationship. The presence of that father in that society of husband and wife and unborn child all has an effect on the child, even in the womb. Because it's a part of the nature of the child. Now, at first, the mother has a tremendous influence over that child because he's actually inside the womb. The father at conception had at least 50% of the influence. Now it will seemingly decrease to some degree. It can actually increase if the father is there nurturing and caring and being a husband, husbandman to his wife and to his unborn child. This will have an effect on the child. It'll have a physical effect. It will have an emotional effect. And if he does it in righteousness and love, it will have a spiritual effect. If he does it with resentment, it will also have a spiritual effect. But it will be a different effect and produce a different outcome. And because there's a great many things out there in society, we call them external externalities, they can have an effect. You know, like if you all believe in vaccinations, the husband and wife believe in vaccinations, the child will get all these, you know, whatever it is, 60, 70 vaccines, and that may have an effect. You know, the child may become autistic. And it's because they've already accepted other things. These are all things in their wilderness, in their jungle. And it's affecting their decisions. And their decisions are affecting that child. And it's going to affect the generation to come. And now you multiply that times a hundred other families. And you are going to be creating a literal society or a micro universe that is going to have a certain kind of outcome. So the choices you make are a big deal. And they will determine social costs. So, if we, we go down and we look at the definition of, uh, you can actually see the page uh, preparing you, Robert Burke, and just look for it and you'll see it. But social costs in economics, so we're limiting the definition, may be distinguished, may be distinguished from private costs. Social cost is also considered to be the private cost plus externalities. 
And so we already mentioned externalities, but we'll talk more about that. Rational choice theory often assumes that the individual consider only the cost they themselves bear when making decisions, not the cost that may be borne by others. So right away in that definition, you see there, at least in this, you know, rational choice theory, which is not all of social costs, but it's a rational choice theory in relationship to social costs. You're not as concerned about your neighbor's welfare as you are your own. You're only concerned about what's, what's, what's it in it for me. <laughs> what's the cost for me? You know, I, I can see you can add and subtract. Okay. So that's, that's the parameters. So right away, that rational choice is not a spiritual choice theory. Although rational choice should include what does it do to the rest of my society? How does it cost the rest of my society? You know, there used to be a sign, I think it was in Dallas, you'd see these signs. It might have been reversed that um, flush the toilet when you leave. Fort Worth needs the water because they were downstream. Well, it's this downstream uh, disregard that is not kingdom. You actually care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And um, that rational choice theory evidently excludes that. So anyway, if we go back to this whole idea of social costs, I went on to say social costs in the kingdom model are easier to calculate. Now, why would that be? Since the economy in the kingdom is substantive, and real-time, without usury, there is little dependence on debt and therefore less market failures. Because that's, that's part of that definition is has to do with the externalities and market failures, and we'll see that. The kingdom of God, you're to have gold and silver, commodity money, doesn't have to be gold and silver. I mean, you could be on a a desert island where there is no gold or silver and you use puka shells. But the puka shells are the result of someone's labor to put them together and bead them together. And so that 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 becomes your valuable exchange rate and you kind of choose that amongst yourselves. Federal Reserve notes don't have any value. They actually tell you that on the Federal Reserve website. And there are Federal Reserves in most major countries, almost every country. There were a few that were holdouts, but they've all been conquered in the last 20 years. And uh, now they've set up Federal Reserve systems in there. That's that's a different kind of currency. That's not present value. That isn't substantive. So when you have substantive present value, real-time means of exchange, without usury which is forbidden, without a use tax, then there's a little dependence upon debt and therefore that leads to less market failures because debt is what creates most market failures. Okay. Secondly, because the power of governing remains divided within the hands of every individual under basic concept of property rights, the idea of government intervention to regulate is already in the hands of the individual because he must regulate himself. 
He's not exercising authority one over the other. He's regulating himself. Now, if he violates those basic property rights in others, then it becomes the responsibility of everyone else in the community to protect his rights because they all care about him as much as they care about himself. He never finds himself alone in a court facing some gigantic corporation that is squeezing him dry in the kingdom of God. He will never find himself alone in such a court because his neighbors, which are created by his love for them and their love for him, will be there for him. This gives you... I mean, when when somebody, when an Amalek went up and tried to take something from an Israelite, he blew his horn and every Israelite came to his aid. It didn't take the Amaleks very long to figure out you can rob from him, you can rob from him, but you do not rob from an Israelite. There's a line in um, is it Magnificent Seven. Uh, Eli Wallach is talking about, uh, he said he, he would rob from Mexicans and he would rob from different people, but he went across and he robbed an American bank. And they sent a whole army after me. And uh, and he, he complains about that whole army. He says, so I learn. Mexicans only rob Mexicans. <laughs> so I did. Well, that was what the Amalekites did with the Israelites. They realized you couldn't mess with them. Because they were a community that followed a basic fundamental rule of nature. You love your neighbor as yourself. Including those outside the camp. Which again... Go read our article on Red Heifer and you'll understand what I'm talking about there. Because it had nothing to do with a heifer or the color red. (laughs) It's completely false interpretation. I mean, the translation could be literally correct, but those are metaphors. And if you don't understand the metaphors, you don't understand the message. So anyway, so these parameters that I'm talking about will alter the social costs. Now, social costs, again, look at, they, they give the example sometimes when talking about it. You're selling lemonade. The cost is the lemons, the cost is the water, the cost is the sugar, the cost is the cups, and you have to walk to the lemonade stand. These are the costs. And then you sell the lemonade and what you get back, if it's enough to buy more sugar and lemon and with a little left over for your labor, then you figured out your social economic costs. But uh, they're in more complex exchanges. You know, I went out and I cut trees in the rainforest and I sold those trees. And it cost me so much for chainsaw, chainsaw gas, shipping, and those are the costs. But what are the costs when the rains came and the waters eroded away the soil and the soil went down into the rivers and became barren and nothing would come back and grow there for years and years and years? That's another cost wasn't calculated in by that individual. In the kingdom of God, those costs are calculated in because we have the first commandment to dress it and keep it. So it's a question of how you do your math to some degree. So anyway, uh, so there's less market failures, but uh, and we talked about the the rational choice uh, deal for the action, since they they will they will pay the consequences of their actions if they damage their neighbor 
in the course of their enterprise because responsibility is on the hands of the individual and whatever he does. So anyway, now to talk about these externalities. They say uh, there can be an unaccounted social cost, which they call externalities, and some market failures, uh, but they become more irrelevant because the responsibility is both in the hands of the individual and spread out amongst every individual. Now, this is key, and we'll talk about this when we come back from the break and what these externalities and third-party effects arising from this production and consumption of goods when we come back. Okay, welcome back. So let's let's kind of sum up some of this. Uh, we'll probably have to deal with social justice in the third program today. But uh, this responsibility in society, the social cost of society, when you do business in society, when you produce, when you consume in society, there's a social cost created simply by doing that. Now, of course, cost to you because of what you're doing is one thing, but there can be costs to other people, raise pigs, there's an odor that comes from raising pigs. Can you keep it contained on your property or will it go to the next person's property and devalue his property? You can't just do that. You can't affect his property by polluting the stream, the wind, uh, whatever. You cannot poison. If you poison anything, you have to maintain that poison. You become responsible for that poison. It should take us back to the whole GMO issue. The GMO issue is because of an imbalance where they're they're saying that he has rights because he has genetically engineered a product in a laboratory, but somebody else who has genetically engineered that product through three generations of growing rapeseed in a careful environment, he doesn't have any right to his product. So one trumps the other. That's an inequality. It's not created by nature. That inequality is created by a government that is blind to justice. It is blind to justice because all the people in that government, or a vast majority of them, have become accustomed to living at the expense of others. Because they have believed a lie that it is okay to covet their neighbor's goods at the, you know, to provide benefits for them. And so once you do that, scales come over your eyes and you can't see other things. And then because those scales are over your eyes and you can't see other things, you will fall into the mire, into quicksand, and get involved into all kinds of other things that will bring about things like uh, genocidal abortion and uh, uh, self 
uh, drugging society where society goes out and becomes drug addicted and pays the medical society to addict them to drugs because they want to believe that the man in the white coat knows what he's doing. They will, they will be a respecter of his person because he has this white coat. They will give more credence to him. Why? Because they have, they have nothing else. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They have already turned their back on the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what it says in 1 Samuel 8? Go read that. 1 Samuel 8. Because they have already rejected me. How did they already reject God? That he should not reign over them because they were not loving their neighbor as themselves. They were not coming together and defending their neighbor's rights when marauders came. They wanted Saul to do that. And Saul was willing to do that. That was the birth of the socialist state in Israel. Is that now you're going to and eventually, he said, this will lead to take and take and take and take and take. And eventually, Saul did force a sacrifice to fund his army to take care of the needy. And we show you, you know, just First World War. This is Veterans Day, evidently. Uh, First World War, they needed ambulances on the front line. Did they go out and tax everybody to provide these ambulances for the soldiers? No. 2,000 ambulances were donated by the people of Great Britain by donation, bought those ambulances and enough money to pay the drivers to go there to the front and use those 2,000 ambulances to get the wounded off of the front lines. Mechanical ambulances, because they were using horse-drawn ambulances before that. It was not done through taxation. It was done through free will offerings. There's a new movie coming out, uh, Dunkirk. I, I don't know if they call it Dunkirk, but it's the, it is about Dunkirk, where the boats went over with their own gas, their own energy, their own time, risking their own lives to save the men on the beaches of Dunkirk. That was not the army, that wasn't the government taxing the people, they actually did it for themselves, because that spirit was still alive and well. And it was around a little bit during 911 when they had to evacuate people. It was one of the largest evacuations in the history of the world, I think, from New York because they couldn't get across the bridges. And they all these people in the harbors went there. And uh, there's a film narrated by um, a famous actor, who I can't remember his name right now, Tom Hanks, where they show how all these people just dropped everything they were doing, took their own fuel, their own employees, and everybody went there and saved these people and evacuated them. It wasn't, it was hugely, it worked extremely well. How could that happen? And the fact is, those people absorbed the social costs, the externalities of social costs themselves by individual choice. Not by taxation, by individual choice, and it worked extremely well. So let's take a look at this externalities, which they call a third-party effect arising from the production and consumption of goods and services for which no appropriate compensation is paid. Well, you have to remember there are all kinds of externalities, and of course they're talking about it in the sense of economics. But let's talk about these externalities in the sense of society. Everybody in New York were a part of a society and many sub-societies in New York when 911 occurred. 
everybody in the surrounding area was a part of those sub-societies. The guys on the river, they're part of a society. They have something in common. They all work on the river. (laughs) Many of them work on boats. Some of them are captains, some of them are mates, but they all work on the river. And suddenly, their society decided to go over and rescue the people, those landlubbers that were over there on the island, stranded. You know, soon without food and water, and they were stranded. They couldn't get home. They couldn't get off the island. And they needed to be rescued. And these people went over and rescued them. And many of those people went home with people and, and stayed in other people's homes and everything else. And they absorbed the cost of the external externalities, these third-party effects that came upon their society. And they did it by choice which again is that rational choice there. Now, to tell you the truth, it, it is a rational choice to go and rescue those people. But if you listen to the people in that film, it wasn't just rational choice. It wasn't just emotional choice. In some cases, I believe it was a spiritual choice. And then they rationalized it afterwards, why they would do this. And, um, I mean, I may put up, we'll put these recordings up eventually on Burke's page because we're explaining some of the things that came up and are talked about in the sidebar there. But uh, we'll put that recording of the uh, video of uh, the rescues there. And you listen to the voices. What was going to the people? The same thing went on in the shooting, which we talked about earlier in the shows this morning uh, down in Texas where this guy runs out. He didn't even take time to put his shoes on. And when he was asked, why didn't you put your shoes on? He says, I was hearing that popping noise, that gunfire. And I knew that every single bullet that went off was directed at somebody. I couldn't wait. I had to... He raced towards danger (laughs) to stop and to protect other people out of love. There was an externality that came into the community and was killing people. And he raced to put to terminate that externality that was damaging others. If that that was a greater spirit, I saw a, a video of all kinds of movie stars, and uh, I guess they're all movie stars. Uh, were, I don't recognize a lot of them, <laughs> but I recognize that some of them are movie stars. Talking about we need to have. Uh, a plan. We need to have a solution. That isn't it time for the children that the the people that they are naming all these different shootings? Well, uh, Wiley Ford, Stephen Wiley Ford, he had a plan, and he filled his hand <laughs> with an AK-47. I guess with was it an AK-47 or AR-15? Anyway, assault rifle, and went out there and assaulted evil. And and stopped evil and saved lives. Undoubtedly, people try to put it down, but it, undoubtedly it saved lives. The guy was going back to get more ammunition and guns. He wasn't done. He wasn't to the point where he was going to commit suicide yet. And uh, he may have saved cops' lives. He may have saved other people's lives. And people actually there saw him coming over to shoot them and was distracted by because he evidently spotted the uh, Stephen coming up. And then he went around his car to get in it where more guns were. And then that's when the exchange of fire took place. But anyway, let's get on to these externalities. And uh, so we just saw several different ways I explained how 
externalities, these things that damage, this market crash, it's externalities, these extra costs that come into society are dealt with by free choice and paid for by free choice, sometimes with the lives of the people who pay for them. It's not paid for by government. It's paid for by individuals who come to the aid of other individuals. Now, the more organized they are and the, the, the more together they are as a society and the people on the river came together really well. They had radios. They were communicating. They were telling what they were doing. They completely organized themselves unregulated except by themselves and did an amazing job. Had you turned that job over to the government, they would have, the people would have starved to death on the dock <laughs> because they, they don't operate that quickly, that fast, that, because these people had a vested interest. I tell you, a spiritual power comes when you start to make those sacrifices. And if you make them in a larger community, it, it is exponential in its effects. So anyway, how is the general externalities dealt with? Well, they're done by private investment, which is what I list there. Well, that private investment was the all the fuel those people in those boats were burning to go and aid and assist those people that needed to be evacuated. That cost them money. They walked away from paying jobs to go there and do that. All the coffins in that small town have been... Uh, supplied by a coffin maker who's going to offer them for free. All the funeral expenses have been paid for by donations from people outside of the community by free choice. Not government assistance, by free choice. They already have collected enough money to tear down that church where all these people died. And I mean, it's actually a, a hazmat scene now because of all the blood and everything. And uh, they're going to tear down that church and build a new one for that small congregation. All coming from free will choices, externalities. That power is there. The more organized your society is on these basic day-to-day aid and assistance, helping, taking care of the widows and orphans, what we call pure religion, the more you have, and if, if people who are listening to this don't understand the definition of pure religion, better read our article on that so you know what I'm talking about, then this was taken care of by in societies like Israel, which was a nation, not just a society, and it beat all comers, ancient Israel, early Israel, and it was supplied through the church in the wilderness, which was just a mechanism by which the people through rational and loving choice could take care of those externalities. When a husband got a sickness and died and left his widow and his orphan children to die because he died and the family couldn't pick up the slack of the cost of living, the church came in. The church in the wilderness came in. The same with the early church. And as Rome declined and fell and there was economic collapse and runaway inflation, and uh, public services were not there, and people had to flee whole towns uh, under a threat of invasion or just disease or economic collapse, no food. The church, the early church, through free will offerings, through faith, hope, and charity, and that perfect law of liberty, paid 
for the social costs of the influence of these externalities. And some of that was market failure due to the fact that they took all the silver out of the Roman silver coin. And so that that's what caused the runaway of inflation. So all these social costs which came upon Rome destroyed Rome. The free bread and circuses. Now, here's where the social cost really is important to take a look at. Rome was brought down by free bread and circuses because it undermined the people. It destroyed the character of the people. And that is a social cost that is difficult to calculate. I've said this years and years ago when I first came out here to the desert and people were talking about, you know, they were complaining about social welfare and the cost of social welfare and all the money that goes to social welfare. The real cost of social welfare, as it's practiced today, social welfare by men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. In other words, social welfare by governments it tax some group of people to provide for other groups of people. The real social cost is not the dollar and cents amount of what's wasted in welfare. It's the loss of human integrity. It's whole generations of people, white and black. It's really hit the black community, but white and black communities uh, has been devastated morally because of the fact that they are not operating by faith, hope, and charity. They're operating by force, fear, and violence. It alters society. Society can alter the environment. They can cut down trees. They can pollute streams. But society can alter itself, can alter the individual. Back to that child in the womb. The father beat his wife, she could lose that child. Father doesn't feed his wife, she could lose that child. The 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 father um and the mother eat bad, drink, take drugs, they can cripple that child. And we see that. Uh, so their choices affect the environment of their immediate society, that component society called the family, and the whole of society by the choices that you make. The golden calf, we have links there on the page to golden calf and one purse. Read that. Those are altering the nature of the individual by blinding him to certain things so that he cannot see where the quicksand is in the wilderness where the poison plants are in the wilderness, where the good plants are that heal and, and take care of them in the wilderness. Because he is blinded, because he is his society decide to organize according to the golden calf or according to socialism, which is one purse. Both of these things are talked about, you know, in these systems out there. Uh, this is very important understanding what kind of society and how you want to organize in society because you are not just a product of chemical reactions. You are an individual that can make all kinds of choices and you want to gather with other people that are making a choice that will strengthen the community. You you look at Detroit. You don't want to become like Detroit became or Baltimore became or a lot of these other places. I mean, you go to India they have cultural choices that are already made centuries ago that bring about the slums, their class system, all this stuff. Socialism is always a class system. They talk about equality. They actually produce the opposite because they don't have the equality of opportunity. If you produce more, they will take more from you. 
They will force the taking from you. Why? Because you're in the class of producing more. <laughs> See? So they target you. If you produce less, they give you more. They are fighting against nature. And nature, the, the strongest survive. And the weak perish. Now we have to define strength. Well, someone who is smarter, uh, stronger, harder working, he's strong. But if he doesn't have compassion, a sense of justice, if he doesn't care about others, this is why Jesus says that he condemned the Pharisees because they did not attend to the weightier matters. What are the weightier matters again? Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. So law and justice means you have a right to your property. What you produce is yours. Mercy is what you saw all those people on the on the river doing when they turned their boats to go rescue these other people. Faith is what led them to do that. Allegiance to the Spirit of God. They said, I, I had to go. I had to help those people. I had to save them. I was compelled to do them. That's because faith. That isn't because they go to some particular church. It's because it's written in their heart that that's what I have to do. I, I, I hope I remember. I think I have that video somewhere. I'll put it up on the page so that you can see it and so that you can understand what that's all about. So anyway, we're back to social justice again. And, and we'll probably uh, cover this more in greater detail later on because we only have a few minutes left. But again, go back to those two definitions of social justice. Because social justice is very much a part of, and we'll give you a little bit of the history in the next program. But uh, social justice is a concept of fair and just relationships between the individual and society. So those trees, men like trees. I saw men like trees, the blind man said, as he suddenly saw again. And... uh and the fact is, is trees are individual things in a forest. And that forest represents metaphorically society. And each tree adds strength to every other tree. But they can also make other trees weak because they protect them from the wind that actually builds the trunk of the tree. But together they hold the soil, they fertilize the soil, They there's usually a climax species a lot of times there's intermediary, uh, intermediary species in a forest that uh, grows for a while, puts nitrogen in the soil like uh, alders will put nitrogen in the soil, build back up the soil. And then uh, another tree grows up under that and eventually becomes the dominant species and grows up and becomes the ultimate forest there. If you cut out the, which I've seen the Forest Service doing with poisons, cutting out that intermediary uh, alder plant they deplete the soil and the next uh, level of trees the next generation of trees is not as well not as strong not as uniform the soil isn't as good it doesn't grow as well so there's huge complexes in nature and if you cut out one part of the process of producing a society that is healthy from generation to generation you can undermine the whole of society. So those terms, those relative terms of fair and just, that, that, it, that should be 
defined by what righteousness is. It, you have to love your neighbor as yourself, including your rich neighbors. And there's all kinds of things that we can show you that were built into some of the feasts and festivals that would ensure that. And certainly James talks about it, not to be a respecter of persons, that rich and poor are equal in the eyes of God. And if you have a society that comes together loving its neighbor as itself, respecting the rights of the neighbor as itself, and not wanting to redistribute by force. I mean, it's, you have the perfect uh, hypocrisy today where your, uh, your anarchist is going out there trying to rule over everybody else and control everybody else. Uh, that's not an anarchist. That's the reverse. An anarchist doesn't want to have a ruler, but he also doesn't want to be the ruler. A socialist, he is very unsociable to the rich. He wants to take away from them and force. He wants to pretend to be the benefactor. You know, I I saw an interesting clip from, uh, is it John Peterson? I can't remember his name, but anyway, I'll, maybe I'll put that on the page too where he, he talks about the people who wanting to have this position of power to take away, to be the Robin Hood and take away from one and give to another. But they're altered by that. They be, That's the Saul syndrome, which destroys society, kills the spirit in each individual man. But until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.